0: Scripture reading today is from Genesis 4. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Amen.
1: Super positive and encouraging reading right there, getting us going. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the things that people in our culture have a really hard time with is, uh, especially when it comes to their spirituality, is uh, the word, a three-letter word. It's the three-letter S-word, the word sin, and right away you hear the word, you're thinking, oh my gosh, what did I come to today, right? Uh, It's a tough word to hear. It's a tough word for me to hear, too. If you're like me, you're way more comfortable talking about, you know, much more uh, easygoing spiritual uh, concepts when you're talking with a neighbor or a friend or a family member or a loved one. Uh, You know, we just prefer faith as being something that helps us, you know, feel all the feels, all the good feels. Under the bad feels. And I don't enjoy talking about the Bible word sin. Who does? But as a matter of fact, that's a, you know, that's a common perspective, right, held by a lot of folks in our culture. But Christian writer and thinker, lady by the name of Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, subtitled The Lost Language of Salvation, she responds to that thought and other thoughts like it. And she says, not only is it functionally impossible to get rid of terms like sin, Salvation, but she says it's actually detrimental to us if we get rid of that word. It's detrimental to us spiritually, uh, psychologically, emotionally, and she puts it like this She says, Why should we speak of sin anymore? She says, Abandoning the language of sin will not make sin go away. Human beings, this is the big idea, human beings will continue to experience alienation, deformation, damnation and death no matter what we call them abandoning the language will simply leave us speechless before them and increase our denial of their presence in our lives ironically it will also weaken the language of grace since the full impact of forgiveness cannot be felt apart from the full impact of what has been forgiven So my question today is, what can help us see, what can help us maybe even experience the grace of God in a greater and deeper way? Well, I think Genesis 4 can. I think this chapter, Genesis 4, doesn't give us like a definition of sin or a definition of grace. Genesis 4 gives us a story. It's a story. And I want to tell you today, if you will see this passage rightly, I believe it has the power of change your life so what do we see in Genesis 4 that can help us experience the grace the power love of God three things today first there's two ways of seeing we're gonna look at that there's two ways of living we're gonna take a look at and finally one better word let's begin and take a look at two ways to see something let's see what that something is Uh, we'll begin in verse one it says Adam Made love to his wife Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, Eve said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, these are the first words we are told Eve speaks outside the garden. Now, why is that important? Well, if you were here last week, you may recall the last thing God spoke to her inside the garden in Genesis 3. He told her, he said, Eve, one day one of your offspring from from your seed is going to come a savior, a deliverer. He'll be struck by evil, but he himself will end all evil. So God promised Eve that one day somehow a redeemer is going to come through her body and save the world. And now Eve has a son and names him what? Cain which means essentially I've got him I've possessed him here he is what she's saying she's saying literally here is my savior God promised me a savior this is the one you'll notice she says nothing about Abel right she only speaks about Cain she's holding her baby in her arms thinking here is my salvation now pause Morgan, are you saying this is telling us that Cain grew up to be what he became because of the twisted and God-sized expectations his parents put on him? Well, that's possible. (laughs) But what I want you to see more than this, and what I think the passage wants you to see more than this, what the passage is really all about is the unexpected power and shape of sin. And here's what I mean. The passage is shocking, right? I mean, it's not fun to read. Shocking. It's supposed to be shocking because you move from Genesis 3, right, last chapter, with in a sense, you know, it's only mom and dad eating some naughty fruit. Now, more than that, don't want to make light of it, but in a sense, that's what's happening. But immediately... Only a few verses later, Eve's holding her baby in her arms, thinking she's holding the world's savior, when in reality, she's holding her other son's future killer. Not a redeemer, but a murderer. And if you're asking the question, man, how did it get this way? How did sin grow so fast? Now you're asking the right question. You're asking, how do you go from just eating from a tree in Genesis 3 to murdering your brother in Genesis 4? Now you're asking the right question. But God himself gives you the answer. Really a clue here. In verse seven, this is where the word sin is mentioned for the first time in the Bible. Look at verse seven. God says to Cain, Cain, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And the word for the word, uh, Hebrew word for the word crouch is the word used for lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, Just kidding. It's used to describe predators in the Bible. And this makes sense, right? Because when a predator wants to make itself look smaller, what does it do? It crouches, right? It becomes like a crouching tiger, a hidden dragon yeah it pulls its legs underneath itself so as to make itself appear smaller and disguise its full power which shows you now what about sin what's what's God saying to Cain well he's saying to Cain and to all of us the real problem we all experience with sin is the problem of underestimation Underestimation. We underestimate it. We don't take sin as seriously as sin takes us. Because how does sin grow from eating from a tree in chapter 3 to murder in chapter 4? Why didn't Eve see this as possible? It's because she underestimated what she had done. She underestimated the cost she would pay. She underestimated the effects of what she would do. There's no way she thought back in the garden. Well, if I do this now, hmm, it'll come back and haunt me in ways I can't possibly imagine. No, she does She never thinks that. She underestimated sin. And so God is coming to Cain now and he's pleading with him, oh, Cain, don't make the mistake your mother made. Don't make the mistake your father made. Don't make the mistake your parents made. They underestimated what sin does. Don't let the same thing happen to you. I think the best illustration I could possibly find, I've shared this before. If you're new, this is gonna be new for you. Uh, The best illustration I could find in the English language uh, is a story from a a book called Tales of the Kingdom. It's actually like a fantasy myth cycle about a young girl, there's a story in this cycle about a young girl named Amanda. And in the story, there's a young princess named Amanda. She lives in a place called Great Park. And Great Park is, in the story, it's the lone place of safety for those rescued from the evil enchanter. Who lives in an enchanted City, and there's a man in the park named Caretaker. His wife's name is Mercy, and together with the Brave Rangers, uh, they keep hope that one day the king will return and restore their fallen world, right? And every spring in the story, great dragons would fly past Great Park. They lay their beautifully colored eggs, but the first rule of Great Park is this: It is forbidden to keep dragon eggs, because baby dragons grow up to be big dragons. And big dragons bring death. The story goes, one day, Princess Amanda finds two bronze, beautifully colored dragon eggs. But she doesn't take the eggs, as the rule is, to Caretaker and Mercy. She hides them, and one morning, one of them hatches, and this is what she says. (coughs) She says, I must take you to Caretaker, she said aloud. He will know what to do about surprise hatchlings. But the little beast turned its brown eye on her, and a great tear dropped onto its breast. Amanda began to love the baby dragon. Though she knew it was for, for forbidden, she kept the hatchling for a pet. Just for a little while, she thought, perhaps I can tame it. The dragon continued to grow. Amanda continued to feed it and play with it. But then Amanda soon discovered that her pet hated to be left by itself. The dragonette particularly hated to be left alone at night. And so Amanda began to stay away from the great celebrations. Amanda became angry at the law, that kept her from sharing her pet with others what harm is one small dragon she thought but the dragon kept on growing became large enough to begin to breathe fire and began to light little fires in the, what's called Amanda's secret place but she was careful to to put them out remove traces of the fire but then she began to also to think ill of those who loved her most she began to resent them when they asked her where have you been why aren't you coming now to the great celebrations anymore That same night it said Amanda realized that the scales of the dragon sleeping beside her were very hard. She knew that its big body was crowding her and that grown dragons were no laughing matter. This was the last night she would allow the dragon to return from its hiding place in the forest to sleep with her in the den. It had become too big and Princess Amanda was afraid somehow she had to get rid of the dragon but she doesn't. And a few mornings later, she wakes up to the smell of smoke and fire. The dragon had lit the forest on fire, all the homes of the people in Great Park on fire. And she's scared now for her home, for her life and for her friends. And suddenly it says she knew great harm could come from one small tame dragon because small tame things grow into big wild beasts she finds the dragon she confronts it she commands it to leave her leave great park but when it heard her call and speak to it it says it stepped out of the trees into the meadow to face her Amanda gasped it had grown even more and she had not noticed how much the dragon had become cunning why had she not seen this The dragon attacks her. She's got to fight it to the death. She's locked in mortal combat with it. She does defeat it. She does kill it. But though she wins the fight, many of her friends are burned in the fire. They lose their homes and their lives. Oh, why? Why had she not seen how large it had become? Here's why. Because no matter what size a forbidden thing is, it always appears smaller than it really is always appears smaller than it really is. Sin was crouching at her door until it came for the kill. That's what sin does, which is why the the old theologian John Owen said famously, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There are two ways to see sin. You can see it as small or see it as significant. It's your choice. But God is pleading with you, pleading with us like he pleaded with Cain. Don't make the mistake other people have made. Don't underestimate the power of sin but the passage isn't just challenging us to see something it's also now secondly encouraging us to live in a certain way or should i say to live from a certain place number two there's not just two ways of seeing there's also two ways of living we see in the passage all right once we see what sin is we got to ask, well, then how should we live? <clears throat> what kind of lives do we, what kind of lives should we live once we recognize sin's power? Well, the way to answer that would be to answer the question almost everyone asks when they come to the passage. Matter of fact, I was talking about this passage with my daughter last night, and she asked me this question. I said, well, that's, thankfully, it's also in my notes. But all right, what they ask, people ask, she asked, why does God accept Abel's offering here and reject Cain's, right? Now, one answer that uh, people have suggested, I'll never forget my college professor. I took a religion class at a college professor who suggested we study this passage. Uh, he said, you know, it's because God loves animal sacrifices more than agricultural sacrifices. So Cain was kind of doomed from the start. Again, the guy had a PhD, uh, apparently, but he's teaching this. But Now, is this what this is, right? As in, well, you know, Cain, or excuse me, Abel's got sheep. Cain's only got salad. You know, which one would you want? You know, Abel's got that lamb. Cain's only got that lettuce. If I were God, I'd be grouchy too. You know, where's the beef, Cain? Is this just showing us, like my professor said, God's a meat lover, not a vegetarian. Not at all. Let's look a little deeper. Jesus in the New Testament tells a brilliant parable. He says, this is what my kingdom's like. He says, look out at humanity. There's going to be wheat and there's going to be tares, which is essentially like weeds. Wheat and weeds, two plants that look sort of the same from a distance. He's saying there's going to be those who really do love me, who really do serve me. And there are going to be those who only appear to be serving me, appear to be loving me. He said they're both going to be like in the world, even in my church. He said it's going to be hard to tell the difference from a distance, which means this in life your life, and even in the church, there's always going to be people who appear like they're serving God, but they're only going through the motions. They appear to have some level of connection with God, but they don't really want him. They don't really know him. I mean, look at Cain right here, right? I mean, is Cain's problem that he's some kind of (laughs) atheist? Is he like going on TV debating people out of their faith? Or is he, you know, is he like out boozing it up, you know, getting his grind on in the club? No. Is he a drug dealer, child trafficker? No. On the surface, there's not that much difference between Cain and Abel. So let's look at Cain a little deeper. He believes in God, right? He's got a level of relationship with him. After all, he's talking to God here, right? What's going on? As we heard earlier, this first family, they didn't have a lot to go on theologically, right? They basically had like one verse, Genesis 3.15, that promise that one day God's going to send someone to save the world. So God promises them salvation, which means there's only two ways to respond to God's offer and promise of salvation. Two ways to relate to God. You either have to, one, live in a way that forces God to keep his promise or... You live in a way that thanks God for his promise. Two ways to respond to God's promise of salvation. You can try to earn it by your works. I'm a good person. Look, I'm doing the stuff. I'm a good person. Or you just receive it by faith. And on the surface, this is showing us these two kind of people, they look the same. Cain and Abel both offering sacrifices, both coming to church in a way, both hearing the same message from God, but responding in two utterly different ways ways and Cain is here as like literally every commentator points out he's the original older brother to pull another character from another parable of Jesus he's doing things right to put God in his debt he isn't relating to God because he wants the father only because he wants the father's stuff which in this case is the favor God's given to Abel which would look like in his life more offerings excuse me more more produce bigger uh, bigger crops more stuff see in a way there will always be canes or always be ables, two ways of living. What then, what then, are the marks of a cane? Let's go under the hood of his heart just for a moment and try to see what are the marks of a cane, a heart like Cain's. Three marks here. We'll move through these quickly. First, canes give selfishly. Canes give selfishly. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, had a great illustration about the heart of a cane. And his story goes, uh, it's about uh, a farmer, a nobleman, and a king. And the story goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. And one day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to the king and said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I could ever grow, ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present the carrot to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched. Being a wise king, he discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, wait, wait. You're clearly a good steward of the earth. I want you to have a plot of land I'm going to give to you freely so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted, went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. And he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what could I get for something better? And the next day, the nobleman came before the king, leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses. This is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart, simply said, thank you, and dismissed the man on his way. The nobleman was perplexed, and he paused, and the king said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. See the difference? Why did the king reject the nobleman's offering? Oh, it's the same reason God rejected Cain's offering. Because Cain was giving selfishly. Not to give, not to be a blessing, oh, but to get a blessing. Cain's give selfishly. Number two, second, Cain's also serve reluctantly. They serve reluctantly. Look at what God says to him. He asks him, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And by the way, whenever God asks someone a question, it's not because he lacks information, right? (laughs) He's not trying to see what's in someone's heart. He knows. He's trying to get you to see. And a few years ago, God asked me, actually, a similar question. A few years ago in my own life, uh, there's a, sort of a series of unfortunate events that left me feeling unbelievably drained, and as a result, what had been like a real joy for me, which was ministry, pastoring, teaching, leading, began to feel unbelievably healthy. <clears throat> my own health began to sort of suffer inexplicably in a bunch of ways, till one morning, I literally woke up unable to move. My wife had to take me to the hospital and the doctor, and the doctor couldn't find anything wrong with me, and I went home and slowly, thankfully, began to be able to move around and walk again. And I made it through the holidays that year. Never fully recovered, and was doing all I knew how to do. Right, doing the stuff, offering the offerings, being the all the good pastor checklist, good person that you you know you hope that I am. That <laughs> began, I began really to allow myself. It's a choice to feel unappreciated, unloved, unseen, none, you name it. Began to resent ministry, began to resent church, and headed into Easter that year with a heavy heart. I was tired all the time, time of God diminished, felt dry. And then one night <laughs> at a Good Friday prayer meeting, I didn't really even want to go to, I heard God ask me a cane question. Are you doing this for them or for me? Ah. Again, he's not looking for information, right? <laughs> and right there in that prayer meeting, I just began to weep. I began to realize, you know what? The reason I become angry, the reason my face had become downcast was because I wasn't serving as unto the Lord. I was serving unto people, right? As unto myself, to be seen, thanked, recognized, etc., to be applauded. I'm so grateful God came to me, asked me the same question he asked Cain. See? How are you? How are you serving today? Are you serving? How am I? Cain's secondly, they serve reluctantly. Third, Cain's relate begrudgingly. Relate begrudgingly. Look at how Cain relates to his like you know his own brother after he puts his brother to death. God comes to him, asks him where Abel is again, not looking for information. Cain says, "Well, I don't know." Famously, "Am I my brother's keeper?" Back off, God. What had distanced his heart from his brothers? Well, I think in a word, it's envy. It's envy. The fact that his own brother was blessed, he had favor, it says, from God. In some way, he wasn't evidently Abel's flocks are growing. His crop isn't. Envy, hear me, doesn't always just look in like just wanting other people's stuff. Sometimes, envy. Sometimes jealousy. The seed of murder looks like this. Why should I care about them? They're doing fine. They don't know what it's like to be me. They don't know what it's like to go through what I've been through. I got my own stuff, my own pain. Am I supposed to care about them when I got all this happening in my life? Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, why isn't my brother keeping watch for me? And if we're honest... We don't just do this with other people. Sometimes we do this with church, right? Pray for my church. Pfft. What's it done for me lately, right? Give to my church? It's doing fine. Why aren't they giving to me, right? They have bills. Serving my church? Well, I got enough to do in my life, right? Cain's can only relate begrudgingly through clenched teeth. Well, what then are the marks of an able if we don't want to be that? What are the marks of an able? Well, of course, the marks of an able would be just the opposite, right? An able is someone who can give selflessly, who can serve gladly, who can love freely. But Cain's, of course, can't do it. They can only give selfishly, serve reluctantly, love begrudgingly. Oh, but, but ables can. They can do this. And don't you, by the way, don't you want to do this? Don't you want to live like an able? The answer is yes, you do. Listen, I want to. I don't want to live like a Cain. I want to live like an Abel, someone who gives selflessly, someone who serves gladly, someone who can love freely. I mean, can you imagine if that were you? Can you imagine if we were a church full of people who could live this way, who could give selflessly, serve gladly, and love others, love this city freely? How, then, can we do this? How can we live in that way, like an Abel? Remember what we said earlier, Abel could live like he did because he glimpsed God's heart, right? Abel glimpsed God's heart. Now, if Abel got that, how can we, how can we glimpse God's heart to live like he did? Well, let me ask you, is there anyone else in the Bible that Abel reminds you of? Is there anyone else who truly gave selflessly? Who truly served the Lord his God with gladness? And who truly loved his brothers freely? Oh, I think there is. Let's see him now. Number three, through seeing one better word. When God comes to Cain here, as he does throughout the book, God is revealing the point is himself to the world. That's what Genesis is about. Not you, not me, it's about God. And who is this God? Well, first of all, here, he's a God of mercy. He's a God of mercy. I mean, look how he comes to Cain with murder latent in his heart. Out of the 7 I counted them, 7 sentences God speaks to Cain, 5 of them are questions. See, God's like like a like a wonderful counselor. He's like a therapist counseling Cain here over and over. And even when Cain sins, despite his objections, right? Despite God's intervention, God doesn't wipe Cain out. Doesn't end his life. He comes in mercy and pleading. But what else does God come as here, huh? Well, he doesn't just come as a God of mercy. He also comes as a God of justice, and judgment and right away of course you hear those words oh my gosh we cringe at those words justice judgment we cringe the thought of a God who visits like consequences on people who do evil why can't God just love without judgment why all the stuff in the Bible about God's judgment well I'm going to deal with it in part we'll look at it at length next week but listen those who do away hear me with God's judgment In an effort to make God more appealing, ironically, create a bigger problem. They create a world now with no justice for the wronged, for the murdered, for the oppressed. Because we want to say, right, well, it's not, not really anybody's fault. Or if it is somebody's fault, we just pass the buck. And we say it's society's fault or, you know, more likely it's our parents' fault, right? But is that what God does with Cain here? Does he say to Cain, oh Cain, I know you murdered your brother, but it's not really your fault. It was society's fault. Uh, It was your parents' fault, right? Your mom put too much of herself into you. No. Now while Eve does that, and this text, and hear me, the rest of the book of Genesis absolutely forces you to look at the consequences of bad parenting and the very real effects of societal structures and the darkness that it creates in people's lives. In the end, though, If you want others to acknowledge their sin against you, you must also acknowledge your sin against them. See, God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, not what has your mother done. What have you done? He says, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. He's saying this is your choice, your choice alone, and how you related to me and him came. You're responsible for this. But look, look at what God points to as his reason and his motivation for bringing justice. He now brings out and presents himself to the world as a God who cares about the oppressed. Cain I care about your brother's blood He saying your brother's blood is talking to me I can't get it out of my head it keeps on talking to me Cain I got to do something about it and right away when you see this you realize two things number one you realize you can't really separate justice from love see to be just is to love and to be loving must always include justice Therefore, whatever God does, whatever consequence he ever brings is always loving because he cares about the innocent. It's because he cares about those who are wronged unjustly. He acts against evil. He brings judgment against people who harm because he is love. That's number one. And yet number two, you also realize that if you want his justice to fall on others, you got a problem. You also have to let it fall on yourself. How can we escape? How can we go free? Oh, it's by now, right here. (sighs) Seeing fully what Abel only glimpsed in part. And here's how. Many years later, God made good on that promise he made to Adam and to Eve in the garden. He made good on it. One day, another day. Abel came, another innocent victim came into the world and came to a group of older brothers who were trying to force God to love them, trying to put God in their debt, who were filled with anger because the new Abel, the greater Abel, the one named Jesus, he was telling them that like the prostitutes and the nation betrayers, who were uh, really tax collectors, the thieves and the immoral, they were getting into the kingdom of God ahead of them, who were the good. Self-righteous people. They thought they were the wheat. But this new Abel was telling them they were the tares. And they put Jesus, the only truly innocent man, to death. But something amazing happened because they did. Flash forward. Book of Hebrews chapter 12 says that we have something new Now, because Jesus died and was resurrected, the writer of Hebrews says, now all you come to God. Who is he? The judge of all. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect, you would come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why does his blood speak a better word? Here's why. Because both Abel's blood and Jesus' blood cry out for justice, incessantly unceasingly that's what it means for blood to cry out in the bible it means to cry out unceasingly for justice but while abel's blood cried out for judgment on cain and rightly so jesus blood answers the question how can god be both loving toward us and forgive what we've done while also being just toward us and giving every person what their sins deserve? How? Oh, it's because of this. Jesus went in our place to represent all us Cains. He lived like an Abel. But he died like a Cain, driven out of human community, like Cain was driven out, to take our place, to get what we deserve. And now, 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 hear me? When you call out to him, whenever your heart condemns you, whenever you sin as a Christian, you can know what First John 1 tells you. When you confess your sin, God isn't just faithful. What is he? Come on, tell me what he is. He's not just merciful. He's not just loving. He's faithful and what? Just to forgive us our sins because God's judgment is poured out on Jesus. And now He lives. Oh, He lives ever to make intercession for us to represent us to God. And though God, because He is a God of justice, demands debt from your life, the Son pleads, Oh, Father, now this one is ours. I've paid His justice debt. I've paid her justice debt. And once you know that, hear me. What is just for you now is to demand mercy from God. His mercy towards you is just. It is right for you now as a Christian to not get what you deserve at the hands of God is just. You say, well, that's not fair. No, it's not fair. That's why they call it grace. And it's for every single person who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. Call on him. You will be saved. And to be a Christian is to live by faith in that grace every day. Paul the Apostle, Romans 5 says, this is the grace in which we now stand. It's a legal term. We stand before the judgment seat of God, free. And when you look at Jesus, oh, and you taste that grace and that grace fills your heart, man, you can give generously. You can serve gladly. You can love freely. And yes, you can act justly toward others because there's no need now for revenge. You can lay, hear me, your dragon eggs at his feet. The secret stuff no one knows about. The Bible says will be made visible one day. And you can know whatever he asks of you is loving. It is forever merciful. Church, we can do all this because we have one better word.